Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation 1. And the last time we did finish up with Lamentations, I, I love that song that the worship team was, was singing. And, and I remember in Lamentations, Jeremiah was struggling. I mean, he was calling out to God and, and asking him to look at the situation. And I suspect, and I don't want to make this message just only about an application to the COVID pandemic, but I mean, it is applicable. Next year, it'll be something different. I mean, this is what we face as a nation, as, as a church. You know, Christians have met through some of the worst times. And, you know, as we're looking at the live stream and such, you know, we have to, this isn't the end. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And, you know, the gates of hell and COVID is not going to prevail against this. So we're going to weather this as we have. Um, and one day the Lord will come back and he'll renew everything and restore everything. And that'll be a great time. So we move from Lamentations to Revelation. And I'm going to start off a little slow. I'm not even going to cover the whole chapter because there's a lot of information here. And it's not the type of book that you rush. I actually taught Revelation 12 years ago. And I'm amazed at how technology, world governments, how things have caught up to the prophetic book. And that always happens. Um, so in 12 years, there's even more to apply to what we see in the book of Revelation. It's an incredible book. And we're going to look at this in five parts. So the first is the background, right? Who, what, where, why, when, how. I had a good English teacher in high school, and I was always taught those things. Who and where. So this is the Apostle John, while exiled at the island of Patmos after being tortured and exiled for being a very active Christian. And I use that word active as the operative word because he was active in what he was doing, active in the faith. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the persecuted church. The persecuted church is going to come up. We're going to identify with our brothers and sisters in other places right now that are suffering persecution because of their faith. When? According to many early Christians, A.D. 94 through A.D. 96, this was written during the reign of Emperor Domitian. Emperor Domitian, and you started to see a persecution start to fall on the church because these emperors were very egocentric. Domitian really wanted people to worship him. And the Christians refused to worship a man because they knew that the, the risen Christ uh, was alive. And they could not, in good conscience, worship the Emperor Domitian. So um, he really started to ramp up this persecution. And it ebbed and flowed for a while. Um, Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, Polycarp was a disciple of John himself. Irenaeus and many of the early church Christians uh, speak about this time period that, that John wrote. Uh, and they can almost fine-tune the time period that he wrote and who it was under which emperor. This will make Revelation mostly one of the, well, the last book written in the scripture. So when we look at the codified you know, portion of scripture, Revelation appears to be the last book written. How is it disseminated? Well, it's to be distributed among the seven churches in Asia Minor, which we now know as Turkey. So if we could put up the image of the map, 
and you see Patmos, this little island. It was a penal colony of the Roman Empire. And here is what we know as modern-day Turkey, right? Israel's over here. And you see all these churches. Now, it didn't mean that they were the favorite churches. It didn't mean that they were the best churches. It meant that, I'm going to get into that too, the churches, each church represented something. And people like kind of get into their balkanization when it comes to uh, reading the scripture. Well, each church had a different attitude. And somebody says, well, each church was a different time period. Actually, if you look at it, we're going to get into this next time. Uh, there was a lot to each one of these churches and why it was written to. So the letter was supposed to be disseminated around those churches and then also go out to the other churches. It was sort of like a central place between Europe to the west and the, the Near East and the Far East to the right. So, you know, God does things for a reason. And, you know, it could go out in, in east, west, north, south and hit everybody. And eventually it's been preserved for 2,000 years. What? What is this about? Well, the Greek word or the Greek phrase is apocalypsis Iesu Christu, okay, which means the revealing or the unveiling or the disclosure of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis is where we get the word apocalypse from. It's funny if you look at the etymology of words, that word has evolved. The term, this is apocalyptic literature. And it's sad because in the English, the word means the end of the world, frightening, you know, and, you know, stuff almost uh, apocalypse now was a movie, right? It was, it was a rough movie. But understand that if you actually take that Greek word and go through its meaning, this is the revealing of who Jesus is. This is actually a blessing. I, before I was a Christian, I was afraid of the book of Revelation. I got to be honest with you, because it, that's what the culture said. You don't want to read that or you won't be able to sleep for months. But now that I am a Christian, I read it and I am able to sleep because I know who. So it's very um, enigmatic in a sense. It's very um, ironic. So there's a lot of things about this book. But this is the book of divine consummation and eventual redemption of the physical creation. Where, and, and eventually everything is started new again. But unfortunately, a lot of sad things have to happen before that point. So number one. Revelation reveals Jesus since the ascension. And two, it's also Jesus giving revelation. So you see a lot of these reflexive or reflective properties in this book, right? Why? Well, Christians back then were facing persecution. They were struggling to survive. And this book gave them hope because it was revealing Jesus and that he was in power and he was on the throne and he was going to return. Um, Christian, the church has survived famine, war, disease, um, no buildings, right? Oh, no buildings. You know, churches, we need a building. Well, Christians survived for centuries without buildings. They met wherever they could meet, in uh, sewage systems, people's homes, in cemeteries, catacombs, places where hopefully nobody would be looking for them during the persecution. And they survived. The gates of hell did not prevail. We have to remember that when we look at what's going on today, and there's a lot of fear being perpetrated. I say that take precautions, but don't give in to fear. And certainly as Christians, we shouldn't be, and I see these Facebook, you know, the they memes, and they go around and around, and everybody's frightened, and it's not the end of the world. It really isn't. Um, when the end of the world comes, I always say we'll know it. <laughs> so uh, Revelation shows us that Jesus is still on the throne. And our focus needs to be on him. I live streamed Isaiah 6 Wednesday night. 
And that's a powerful scripture. When you read that, you kind of forget about everything that's going on in our culture. There's just so much power to Isaiah 6. So now's the time to shine as believers. There's four views. You know, it's funny. Uh, human nature is to want to shine when everything's good. When there's money in the bank, when you've got friends. And a lot of times God calls us to shine when we should shine. And there should be a contrast between the backdrop of a very dark world. Things are very depressing right now for a lot of people. We know people that are close to us that are losing everything. Um, my wife has a friend who started a, a florist business in Pennsylvania. And it's terrifying. It can't, she can't even do deliveries. So my heart, honestly, is breaking. Not only for the sick, but for those who are suffering economically. You see what I'm saying? But is this our time to shine? Four views of revelation are important. Number one, some look at this, it's called the poetic or symbolic view of the cosmic battle between good and evil. However, there's too much richness to just look at revelation as, you know, symbolic, allegoric, poetic. Why did God devote 22 chapters to an oversimplification? Makes no sense. Sometimes uh, churches or groups that hold to this view don't really have a desire or the ability to go deep into the God's word. So they just say, oh, it's just, it's just symbolism. Don't, you, don't, you could read it, but you'll get confused. And I've heard things like that. That's sad. So two is the preterist view. All of Revelation is interpreted by what happened during the Roman persecution of the church. I also believe that's myopic or short-sighted. It's an oversimplification. When you know, actually, when you start to learn about Roman history, there's things that just don't fit. And people try to make it fit. That's why we should read the Bible for what God wants to say to us, not for what our preconceived beliefs about the Bible are. That's important. Exegesis versus eisegesis. Some in Reformed theology hold this view, and it helps them not to discuss difficult topics such as the rapture or the harpazo, the millennialism. Not to be confused with millennials. <laughs> when I hit that part, I've got to make that clear. It's funny the expression words matter. Our, our language keeps evolving, right? And um, when I got to get to some parts and say, well, it's not what you see in the culture. The Bible had this term before we termed it. Uh, the second coming, uh, the difference between the second coming and the rapture. I mean, these are hard topics that the preterist view doesn't really have to deal with. Three, the historicist view is revelation is an allegoric panorama of the history of the church. The problem again is that which church? The church up into the first century? Well, what about when we read it? Is there anything that applies to us? So is this this evolving book that um, it also makes the church the focus and not Jesus? That's the problem. It's the revelation of Christ, not the revelation of the church. And four, which is the view I hold to, is the panoramic or futuristic view. It takes all three of the prior views into account but it also is God's dealing with all of mankind from beginning to end. The fact that Jesus Christ is prominent through its entirety. And there's also a future that is going to be revealed. And when I talked about technology and culture and things catching up to the Bible, that's the beauty of God's word. The other views kind of take God's word and take it off its pedestal and really make it simple. This view says, wow, there's a lot of things that we don't know in any church age. 
but God will reveal it. That's why every 10 years, revelation becomes fresh again, because God is that amazing. Word on globalism, a little irony here is that revelation gives a global perspective, but reveals globalism to be the problem. Remember, a lot of enigmas, a lot of uh, corollaries in this book. I'll say that again. Revelation gives a global perspective, but reveals globalism to be the problem. And we live in a culture that keeps, and Christians are caught up in this unwittingly. They're caught up in this globalist push. The problem with that is, is that if you look at anyone who's really, truly a globalist, there's no place for Christ in that paradigm, right? It's solving the earth's problems, mankind's problems through secular humanism. There's no room for Jesus Christ, the true globalist, true globalist who has a a strict ideology, doesn't have any room for Jesus. We're going to look at that. Um, and, the, and then we're going we're gonna to go through this book and then we're going to ask themselves, ourselves, are my, are I, am I more influenced by the media and society and the culture than I am by God's word? That's, this book has a really great way of pulling that out of us. And our understanding and our loyalty has to be with the Lord. Remember, in, in Babel, Babel was the first globalist movement, right? All the way back in Genesis trying to say to God, you know, we're going to get to heaven our way without you, without your precepts. God scattered everyone. Nations were made. And there's this push to come back together again, almost to the Tower of Babel. So some really ancient um, paradigms that are in the scripture that keep resurfacing. We're going to hear about Babylon. Babylon, that's ancient. We're going to hear about a lot of things as we go through this book. So I keep talking about going through this book. Let's open the book. (laughs) Revelation 1, starting with verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which must shortly or quickly or swiftly, alternate translations, take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. So you see the you know, the contiguity, the, you know, coming down, so to speak, the hierarchy, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So two out of five is the introduction. So the background, now we're in the introduction. People get hung up on these terms. The time is near, must shortly take place. Now, I like to, when I teach the Bible, I like to hear the criticism. So, so tell me what you don't like about God's word. Tell me, atheist, what you think is an inconsistency. The reason I gave you an alternate, alternate translation is, well, people say, aha, 2,000 years and all these things haven't happened yet? You're not really paying attention to the wording if you say that because there's three aspects of prophecy you have far prophecy which almost everybody focus on oh what's going to happen in you know from the time that it was written 2000 years later all those people died but god's prophecy still came to pass then you have near prophecy which god also gave to jeremiah and ezekiel and isaiah and said, you know, prophesy what's going to happen in your culture and in your time period. You also have uh telling, which is a part of prophecy, where God just tells it like it is. This is what the culture is saying. God says that's false. This is the truth. 
So prophetic words from the Lord can be in one of those three things, which may be subsets. But these things did swiftly take place, right? Because as we go through the churches, we're going to see that this was for the early church. That actually, according to the uh, map, doesn't exist anymore. So these things, the time was near, and they did shortly take place. And even when you look at the seven-year tribulation period, it unfolds very rapidly. You ever hear the expression, time, time flies? I have a question. How the heck did I get to be 52 years old? I remember when I was 10, 11. I mean, I feel like I got robbed, man. Everything went so fast. So these things, and God's timing is also different than ours. We look at a 1,000 years as, oh, my goodness, that's a long time period. God's like... To him, it's the second because he's outside of time. So you got to look at this for what it is. And I do like to address criticisms and attack, attacks on God's work. As a matter of fact, Revelation and Genesis are two of the main books that get attacked by Bible critics. Destroy the beginning and destroy the end. And then you have a better time of picking apart the other books in the middle. Unfortunately, some in the church will say, don't read Revelation. I mean, these are organizations, big organizations. You can't, without our interpretation, you can't read that book. Well, I'm going to miss out on a blessing because it says if I read it and I follow it, I do get blessed. So I'm going to read it. (laughs) And I encourage you to do the same thing. As one of our young adults uh, said to me, where are we exactly? Because I want to read it before I actually hear the sermon. Great. So this is for the early church. It's for the church now. It's for future believers, depending on how long God takes to return. Now, a caveat to interpretation is, especially in this book and Genesis, right? Interpretation is very important. It has to be in context. Otherwise, you end up with a Jim Jones or a David Koresh. And obviously, that's a problem because people die when that happens. So David Koresh, they had videos of him preaching with the Bible out of the book of Revelation and saying that he was the Messiah. A friend of mine who speaks fluent German, um, the old World War II black and white videos of Adolf Hitler, you know, manic that he was and speaking in German, I don't know what he said. My friend actually, uh, you know, he interpreted it and he said he was a Messiah, right? And he captivated, you know, thousands of people with his. So you got to look at everything in the scripture uh, in context. Verse 3, I love this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written it, for the time is near. Now, I'm a dinosaur. I'm still on Facebook. I didn't get on a Snapchat or Instagram, all these other apps. But every once in a while, somebody sends me a meme or they have it on their wall and this picture of Jesus and dollar bills are coming out of his hand and it says, pass on this meme and you'll get money or, you know, repost this and you'll get a blessing. That's not what this is. That's not Christianity. That is, that's paganism. That's not what this is talking about. A truly godly blessing. I'll just speak for myself. When I pray as, as, a, as one of the pastors of this church, and I know my other pastors and elders pray this too, is what do I want? What's my blessing? I want, if I'm going to be in this position, especially now, I want the Lord to give me wisdom. How do I lead these people? What should we do? What shouldn't we do? You know, what should I preach? What shouldn't I preach? Is now the time or is later a time? You know, folks, I take walks with my dog because she, she can walk far and she's a 
pretty good shape. And I just, people in the neighborhood probably think I'm wacky because I just talk to him as I'm walking my dog. Maybe they think I'm talking to the dog. I don't know. But I asked the Lord for help. I want a blessing. I don't demand it. I would like it. And help me to lead effectively, Lord. Help me to, when I teach your word, especially Revelation, that I say the right thing and I don't say the wrong thing. So what is a blessing to us? You know, for some people, a blessing, asking God for stuff, it's always a material blessing. Got to get out of that mindset because that's not what this is referring to. Especially in times of persecution, the Christians, they weren't looking for money. They were looking for how to survive through this difficult time. Amen? So, John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you follow my word. Right? He wants us to know the word. He wants us to follow the word. He wants us to apply it. And that's part of the blessing. Follow the words. Right? Verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Again, Roman times, Asia, also known as Asia Minor, we know today as Turkey. As the global politics or the geopolitics change, the names change. Iran used to be called Persia for a very long time. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he Christ is coming with clouds and every eye will see him and they also who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. I am the words in red are Jesus. I am the alpha, the beginning and the omega, the end the beginning and the end, who is and who was, uh, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So verses 4 through 8 is 3 out of 5. John expresses where this originates from, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because this is the Father, right, who is, who was, who is to come, and the sevenfold Spirit can be translated like that. And, you know, then, of course, he speaks about Jesus. Three distinct persons, one God. This is very, very important because in the first few centuries, we heard about things like Sabellianism. And a lot of these things are named after people who started these heresies. Arianism, right? Arius, Gnosticism. And today, there are some that preach this stuff. They have TV ministries. They are very bold about it. They write books about it. These heresies were debunked very early on. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's not modalism, not Sabellianism, not he's, you know, he's God, the Father, and then he disappears from the throne and becomes Jesus and then magically disappears and becomes the Holy. It's called modalism, Sabellianism. And it's preached by some very famous preachers that people follow. And it's heresy. It's just not, it's not accurate. It's against what the scripture says. Um, the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit, Isaiah eleven two. I taught on that. The sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit, seven being the number of perfection or completion. 
Verse 5, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. The Greek word is prototakis, where we get the word prototype from. The translation, when it's used in context, means the preeminent one, right? So he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, there were resurrections in the Old Testament. God did some great miracles. Jesus did it in the Gospels. Um, We see it actually in the book of Acts. Resurrections didn't happen a lot, but we did see them. However, the difference is Jesus was the preeminent one from the dead. Because when he was resurrected, first of all, he said, no one takes my life, I lay it down, and I take it up again. Jesus had power over his humanity, over his physical body's death and resurrection. So he was the preeminent one. Where everyone else, Lazarus, was raised from the dead and he died again. How do we know that? Because if he was still around, he'd be on a talk show somewhere. He'd be making millions, you know, off the media circuit. Lazarus died again. Jesus is the one who was resurrected and resurrected because he's God. He's fully God and fully man. Okay? Now, people get hung up on this word firstborn. The Bible refers to some people as the firstborn who actually were not the firstborn literally. So that's how you know that it's a contextual word. So in other words, and I, it's, it escapes me right now, but there are instances where the Bible speaks about a person who was born second, third, fourth, and they're called the firstborn because they were the preeminent one. You see where I'm going with that? It's a contextual word. And I'm starting off slow, but this is, um, we're building a foundation here, right? We're, we have to build a foundation for this book. Somebody just comes in on chapter five on the live stream, they're going to have trouble with it. Because you have to know the foundation before you get to the really exciting and scintillating parts. He who loved us, right? That was the sacrifice on the cross. He who loved us. The cross was the event that proved that Jesus loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That was the action that proved that he loved us. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. If you're watching the live stream for the first time, we've kind of put out that to the community. You are, whatever, wherever you've been, wherever you've, whatever you've done, Jesus died for your sins too. Not just for the people in the church, for everyone, the scripture says. That's important. First Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. He loves us and he cares for us, right? Verse 6, he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Now, this can also be translated a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests, right? A priest was the mediator. So here's what's interesting, and this is how you know this is a, this is a contextual issue, is that the book of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament that Jesus was the last high priest. He was the ultimate high priest. He was not only the high priest, but he was the sacrifice. And that after Jesus' sacrifice, there's no more priesthood that's necessary. Now, some people still do as maybe a cultural matter or a denominational, but it doesn't really carry anything because priests were mediators in the Old Testament. Christ, the Bible says, is the ultimate mediator. So there's no longer that need. However, in a sense, we're kingdom of priests as believers, right? Different, different story here. As believers, Jesus is our ultimate high priest. He has made us a kingdom of priests because as believers, when we go out into the world, in a sense, we're mediators. 
I'm, and I don't show it in my face, but in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, I got to start from the beginning. I'll meet somebody who doesn't know anything about Jesus. They barely heard of Jesus. It's just the way they were raised. Ah, religious, ah, spiritual. And I, I, I almost become like this mediator. I don't have any power or anything, but you know, I'm from God's world. I'm trying to show this person that they're loved by the one who created them that they don't know. So in a sense, we're a kingdom of priests, right? We go out to the world to mediate because they don't have any semblance or sense of who God is. So it's fascinating uh, scripture there. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. And they also who pierced him. This comes, this also is in Zechariah 12.10, the second coming. Now, this is important because through this book, and I'm going to do a chart at some point, I'm going to have a chart of what does the second coming look like and what does the rapture or the harpazo or the Lord literally snatching us from the earth to be with him while the seven-year tribulation period takes place. I'm going to put them side to side, but just for now, I'll give you a little bit of differentiation and people do confuse the second coming with the rapture and it could get very confusing if you don't separate two distinct events first thessalonians 4 13 through 18 speaks about the rapture but it's not the second coming it happens before rapture happens before the second coming what's the difference well when jesus comes for the church in the rapture it's his appearance to christians the world doesn't necessarily see him but in the second coming, every eye will see. There's a difference. We can get into Matthew 24 and Jesus' prophetic words. In the second coming, the Lord Jesus actually touches down on the earth. But in the rapture, he's kind of, I don't know how he does this, but he comes for his believers and we are brought up to meet him in the clouds of the air. He doesn't touch the earth. Um, in the second coming, it's war. The Lord comes back and he's going to make war. But in the rapture, it's a gathering and it's a protection. It's a safety measure, right? As a matter of fact, in Revelation, as we get further on, when Jesus comes back in his second coming, it says that his saints follow him. So they had to get up there first to now be following him back. You see what I'm saying? So there's a chronology in Revelation. We're going to get to that. <laughs> a lot to get to, isn't there? Verse 8, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. Micah 5.2, written a few centuries before Jesus actually came to the earth, tells us that Jesus came from eternity. Now, this is before he was even the babe in the manger. So he existed. He was not a created being like some say. He's always existed from eternity. But Micah is, is giving the Jewish people who are going to see their Messiah in the first century a sense that he's the eternal one. Don't be fooled by the baby that you see in the flesh and bones. He's the eternal one. Okay? A lot to this. You're going you're gonna to learn, if, if you don't know, and there's various people listen to the, you know, the live stream or see it in person or get the CD or whatever, have different levels of how much of the scripture they know. But you're going to really see who the true Jesus is. Right In one portion, he says, and I'm going to get to that, Jesus says he was the one who was alive, who died, and now lives forevermore. And people say they get confused. 
They say, well, that's, no, that's, he's the almighty God. That's the father. And then I say, well, when did the father ever die? Then they get confused because Jesus is the almighty. He is God. He is deity. But at some point he died, his body died so that we could have eternal, so he had to die for our sins. So you got to, as you look through the scripture, you have to, you know, separate and, and make sense of it. And you will, believe me, by the end of this book, you will. If anything, you'll accuse me of going too slow. But if it gets everybody really knowing this book, then it's well worth it. The Lord's perspective. Verse 9, continuing on, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. He's trying to distinguish it, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania, and to Laodicea. So, four, John is the one who disseminates this. Now, again, you will run into people that say you shouldn't read that book. So I have a phrase, a catchphrase. It's called read and spread. So what it's supposed to be is from John to the churches, to everybody else, it's supposed to be read and then spread. Whether you're copying it and you're sending it around, right? So why would the church today not read the book? Why would that be a problem? Here's another issue, and I have to laugh, and, you know, I have a son. When they're little, if you tell them not to do something, well, they want to sneak it and do it, right? So when you got all these people saying, don't read the book, why don't you just teach them the book so they know the book? Instead of having them read it in, in secret, not being, having anybody to go to. So it doesn't make sense. Read and spread. That was what was supposed to happen 2,000 years later. We're supposed to do the same thing. We're doing that this morning. So John, John's having a little issue here. And I love the, the, the humanity here in John. John was the one who listened to Jesus preach. John was the one who leaned on Jesus's bosom. John hears a noise like a voice, but it's a trumpet, and he looks back, and it's the Lord. John's having a little problem because he, he slept on the boat. If he was sleeping and Jesus said, wake up, John, he would know the voice without looking. That was Jesus. Now he hears a different voice. This is the resurrected powerful Christ, the one who's ascended to the right hand of the Father, the one who's going to be coming in this form, back down in the second coming. John has a little bit of a learning curve, right? I love the humanity in the Bible. John remembers the Jesus where his vocal cords vibrated and there were certain pitches and sounds that John knew to be Jesus. Now he hears a voice and he doesn't recognize it because this is the glorified Christ. Isn't that cool? So this little things in here that you could pick out when people say, oh, it's inconsistent. Oh, it's this, it's that. There are things that you can study this book a hundred times and still come up with something new. So he hears what sounds like a trumpet. I don't know. I mean, again, I have voice patterns. You all have voice patterns. But it's going to be different when we're in that form. 
that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about. And thank God for that. John was a brother in tribulation. Now, Peter used similar terminology, a brother, a companion. I went through tribulation too. Again, the hierarchy in the church. It's good to have titles. Titles differentiate what we do in the church, differentiate spiritual gifts. But over authoritarian is an issue. John didn't say, I'm the Pope. John didn't say, it's because I said so. John said, well, Jesus give me this information. I'm giving it to you. I'm being obedient. I'm your brother and I'm a companion in suffering. You're suffering over there in Asia Minor. I'm suffering here. They try to boil me alive in hot oil. They beat me. They separated me. I, I've been alone. I, I don't get to talk to anybody. I don't know what John would say, but I know that John was a brother just like Peter was. All this Nicolaity that Jesus speaks about that we're going to get to, this over-authoritarian hierarchy was never in the scripture, never was intended. Verse 12, last few verses for this morning. It says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And I'll leave it there for this morning. Five out of five is, and I titled this, it's not the babe in the manger anymore. Some people have pictures of Jesus. Some people have pictures of of him being held as a baby. And that was it for a time. Please, I'm not, forgive me if I'm being critical. I don't mean to be critical. But what I'm trying to say is that through this book, you're going to understand exactly who he is. And you know what's really cool? With all this stuff going on in our culture right now, that's comforting to me. Because I know who holds the power. And John was in a similar situation, but different persecution. The church was going through persecution. And for him, he probably, no matter, you know, the scars that he had on his body, the the burn marks, he probably forgot all about that. He was so hyper-focused. He was transfixed on the Lord Jesus in this state. So pretty neat stuff. So five, the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands, I believe, represent the church. And the oil in the lampstands, right back in those days, they didn't have electricity. The oil, and there'd be a wick, and the oil would would give a flame. And you'd walk around with that lampstand, you'd be able to see in the dark. It's really great, and, and, and the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's really great when the church has the Holy Spirit. It's great when Christians have the Holy Spirit. It's great when it happens in good times. But a light never shines so bright when you're holding it through the dark times. And I really believe that's a message for t- us today. It, it really is. You know, I'm, I'm just, every day I'm just seeing this and, you know, I'm, you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing, you, you see the bad in people, you see the, the, the price gouging and the hoarding and stuff like that. But this, you're seeing a lot of good come out of people. 
And I, I wonder sometimes when I see and I go, I wonder if that person's a Christian. I wonder if they know the Lord. You know, there's people just wanting to help each other, wanting to come out of themselves. And, you know, we have to keep our distance. But we also want to love somebody. We want to help them. We want to, you know, and, and there's, believe me, we've had opportunities to minister to people out in public that are just terrified. They're, they're, they, they watch so much TV that they're, it's almost, it's affecting them so negatively, their psyche, their emotions, uh, acute depression, you know, all kinds of things. Um, so I, the lampstands, you know, just because we can't all meet in the building doesn't mean that we can't shine the light of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. So that's good stuff. It's a heart check. The long garment, the gold band. This was a picture of royalty, dignity, and wisdom. Those that were in the monarchy could wear the long robes because that was a symbol of their, their monarchy, their, their royalty, things to that nature. The head and the hair, white as snow. Now, when, when the word white is used, it's not pigmentation, lack of pigmentation, you know, all the light spectrum coming together and making white light. This is something, and, and you saw this with the transfiguration, that they even had trouble describing Jesus. You know, when he was up on that mountain and his deity started to shine through his skin, I kind of did a thing with the, I had the high-powered flashlight I used to carry on patrol, and I had my, my hand up and I put the light behind it and my fingers turned red. When have you ever seen my blood? Never. But when I put this high-powered light behind my hand, from there, you all saw my fingers turning red. You could see the, the blood that was being carried through my fingers. Proves I'm not a vampire. I'm no, just kidding. Um, but in a sense, that's just a light from an incandescent bulb. This is the light of Jesus that they, the gospel writers are on the transfiguration. They're like the, that there was so his clothes were so white that, that any launderer couldn't, couldn't bleach. Like they didn't know how to describe it. How do you describe seeing a vision of God and writing it down on black and white for everybody else to read? They did the best they could. So his head and his hair were white as snow. Not that he was 95, but it's, it's purity, right? And it's, it's an amazing picture. Jesus probably looked like a typical Middle Eastern man when he walked the earth. He looks a lot different now in his resurrected state, in his ascended state. It's cool stuff. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Jesus said <laughs> that the eyes are the lamp of the body, <laughs> right? And we can tell a lot about a person's eyes. You know, and I look at people and I could see their emotions through their eyes. You, you get, after dealing with people for so long, you could see that. But here, this light stands out. And he's looking at the Lord Jesus and he's, and he just is like, just, just not like a human being's eyes. There's just so much power and so much glory in there. His feet were a fine brass, like fine brass refined in the fire. Beautiful picture. You ever see um, metal when it first comes out and there's no tarnish, there's no oxidation? Could be brass, could be gold, could be silver. I mean, I have some jewelry sitting around. I don't really wear jewelry anymore, and it's just tarnished. It looks crummy. Probably should clean it up or sell it or something. But, um, <laughs> but, the, but the bottom line is that he's looking at his feet. And brass is an interesting thing because you saw that in the sacrificial system. It was also a picture of judgment. So 
he's seeing things from head to toe on the Lord Jesus that he's never seen on the earth, and he's doing his best to describe it. He had the voice of many waters. How many of you, it's actually very relaxing, how many of you ever sat by the beach with the waves crashing? My wife and I like to go in in the evening, in the summertime. There's nobody there. It's dark. And all you hear is the waves crashing. Oh, my goodness. That water is just so powerful. Or I've never been to a waterfall, but people tell me it's deafening. You know, that water, it's like your ears ring after you walk away from it for a while. So he had the voice of many waters. Everything about Jesus is glorious. He's not hearing vocal cords vibrate anymore. He's not seeing clothes that Middle Eastern people wore. He's seeing the glory of God. And where do we get into chapter 4? And we get into, we're transported into the throne room of God. And John's trying to describe all the things he sees, doing the best he can. He had in his right hand seven stars. The stars might represent the representatives of each church, maybe the pastor or the bishop depending on their structure of those seven churches. You know, when a pastor is doing right, that pastor doesn't own himself. I've come to that realization for a while now that he owns me and I want to be owned by him. And if you knew my nature years ago, you would say that is not the same person. Nobody owns me. However, I willingly If he wanted to take my life, I would, not that he needs my permission, but I'd say, all right, take me, Lord. Um, It's just, it's a beautiful thing, that power that he has. But he's such a good king. He has the seven stars, but he's, he's a gentle and loving, and he wants to nurture those stars. He wants those stars to be fruitful. He wants them to teach. He wants them to disciple. It's powerful stuff. The question is, Have you come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ owns you? Because I'm going to tell you something. When we come to that conclusion, our whole perspective changes in life. I can make my own decisions. I've made decisions in emergency situations for 25 years. But I love it when he makes my decisions for me. And then I see the fruit of that decision. It's good stuff. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. We're going to see judgment later, literally, that he uses to smite the nations. But also, it's a double-edged sword, pun intended, that God's word is also our spiritual weapon. Now, this is, I have to be very careful with this because people have used this, cults have used this to hole up in seclusion and fight the government and all that kind of stuff. It's not what he's talking about. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, the Bible says. It's with spiritual things. Even when that one person rubs you the wrong way and they're out to get you, there's something controlling them. You understand? And that's what needs to be impaled with the sword, not the person. It's a spiritual weapon. Hebrews 4.12, it's so powerful. gives us a little insight. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The old um, swords, the gladius and the other different types of swords would dull over time. They'd have to keep grinding them at the wheel, but not the Lord's. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts 
and intents of the heart. I'll continue. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We can fool people. We can scam people. We can deceive ourselves, but not the Lord. He's the one that I want to follow for the rest of my life. His countenance was like the sun. And again, you see that in the transfiguration, shining in its strength. So not the sun when it's going down or rising, when it's full tilt, right? This is where we're going to end for the morning. I don't want to rush through it. It's too good of a book. As I said Wednesday when I taught on Isaiah 6, the Lord is in control. And as believers, sometimes we need to hear that and say that and read that. Because then we go out into this world and it's filled with fear, instability, especially now. You know, the graphs. They're always showing you the graphs. But at times like this, we're the ones that have the answers. Because, and if I think about this, if I never got saved and I went through these types of things, I would be like everybody else. I'd be strong in front of everybody, but inside I would wonder. I would be in fear. Now, and some Christians are like that too, and that's okay. You've got to give that to the Lord. It's a, it's, a, it's a learning curve. And the more difficult the tribulation, the more that we have to give to the Lord, and the more often we have to give him our feelings, our heart, our emotions, everything. Lay it out on the table because it says it, that he knows it anyway. He sees all things. I'm going to say more when we get to the other side of what we're going on in our culture, but I would just say to the church that don't miss an opportunity to shine, to be that lampstand, to be that oil burning, flickering light in a dark place, because this world is a dark place. The whole world is coming together and they're constantly trying to reassure their people. And they're just humans. They have the degrees, infectious disease, all this kind of stuff. And viruses mutate. We never know what those little buggers are going to do because we can't see them with our eyes. Right? And that's where the fear comes in. And then they tell us that something's changed. And then they tell us, and they keep shifting. And we keep following them. But if we're looking for sanity, it's not going to be Dr. Fauci. As much as I love that guy, it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you. Let it turn around.